Psalm 105. The first seven verses I call a call to worship, and by that a summons to worship the Lord. Let's read a few verses here. Psalm 105, verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, sing unto Him, sing psalms unto Him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham his servant, ye children of Jacob his chosen, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Alright, notice first of all the way we are called to come before our God. Uh, the three expressions in verse 1, to give thanks unto Him, come with a thankful heart, calling on His name. We have a verse, very famous verse in Romans 10, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I can recall that uh, one time in my youth, we had an evangelist come to our church, and he said, well that verse simply says that if you simply ask God to save you, He'll save you. So he says, how many of you who claim to be saved actually ask God to save you? And almost unbelievably, there were some who said, you know, I don't ever remember asking God to save me. I'm thinking, that's rather strange that you think you're saved and you never ask God to save you. Horace Llewellyn, poor Horace, he was, a, he was actually shorter than me, and that's hard, that's difficult. But he was baptized, I know we baptized him three times in the year that I was there in that church. And I think in his life he was baptized over ten times. Every time a new evangelist came along with a new wrinkle, he got saved again. And uh, we probably shrunk him with all of the baptizing that we did to him. The, the point is, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? What does that mean? If it doesn't mean, well, you've got to ask, ask him to save you. Anybody got a clue? We read back in the days of Enoch. You remember that guy? Way back there. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Now, not everybody at once, okay? Let's keep this. Anybody got a, an idea? Barbie? To seek him? Okay. To seek him how? Verbally. In other words, it is a sense in which we are speaking to God. When you call upon someone, you're crying unto them. And so the idea of being a God-caller is an expression in the Old Testament of calling on the name of the Lord means that you are a God-worshipper and He is the God you call upon in time of trouble, in time of distress. He's the one you cry out to. All men instinctively know to do that. They say, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic. You put them in an airplane about to crash, they're calling out. They're crying out to somebody. They instinctively know there is someone bigger than they and that that someone can do something about this situation. He may not, but they are calling to him. And so it is to vocally implore your God for something. So we are to come and call upon his name. We're to come and notice this last phrase, because this really is the theme of this whole psalm. We are to make known his deeds among the peoples. We are to advertise what our God has done for us. 
and we're to advertise it. Notice among the peoples, this would be outside of the boundaries of Israel per se. This would be out into the Gentile world. We are to rehearse his triumphs, his victories, his acts. Notice that we're to sing unto him. We've seen that over and over again. Sing unto him. Sing psalms. If you can't sing, talk. Some of y'all, I'm not going to name names, Philip. Uh, some of y'all uh, don't apparently don't have the gift of singing. <laughs> that being the case, can you talk? Yeah, you can talk. Uh, notice it is to verbally express what our God has done. Glory in his name. We brag about our football teams. We brag about our ba- uh, basketball teams. To glory is to boast. It is to brag. And we are not to glory in ourselves. We're to glory in our great God. We are to boast and brag of what He has accomplished. And so we're to seek Him. Notice verse 5. Remember His works. And verse 6 and 7. It is a reminder that especially this is directed to the seed of Abraham to this covenant people of God. Notice, Abraham his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. God chose you, children of Jacob. He set you apart from other nations, from other peoples, and you especially are called upon to praise his name. All right? That's sort of the introduction to the psalm. Now, what exactly is the psalm about? It becomes clear, once we start now at verse 8 through 15, that we are doing something that a lot of the biblical teachers and preachers did, and that is that we are rehearsing the history of Israel. Uh, Can you think of somebody that did that? Stephen. What did Stephen do? Uh, Give us, expound on that, Robert. You always resist the Holy Spirit. That's, In other words, in that case, Stephen is pointing out their constancy of their disobedience to God. Rick? In Matthew, yeah, to some degree. The genealogies, the... Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of Paul. We're probably on the same wavelength, but colliding every now and then. Yeah, Matt? The, the, the sort of the history of sin there. Uh, particularly, Acts 13. Paul is preaching in a Jewish synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. That's up in Turkey. And he is uh, going through almost exactly like Stephen does. He goes through the history of Israel, except this time he points out that he gets up to David's day and he says, now the promised seed of David is has come and they crucified him and he's risen from the dead. In other words, it's interesting how they will follow the same sort of outline, but go in a different direction. As Robert is pointing out in the case of Stephen, the emphasis is upon their constant disobedience. And by the way, give you a sneak peek at what's coming next. Well, next Wednesday night we're having music night, but when we get to Psalm 106, it is exactly that. The same use of their history that Stephen made is what will follow in 106. Here, it's a little different. There is no word of condemnation. In this psalm, it is simply remembering what God has done for them. Okay, so let's go a little further. Notice in verse 8, well, what has he done for us? He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. 
In other words, God is being faithful to the promises, the oath that he made. This covenant he made with Abraham, verse 9, his oath unto Isaac. We have a group of men that we call the patriarchs. What are their names? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which of those did God make a covenant, an oath to? It's a trick question. All three of them. Uh, when we were just standing outside of uh, Bethlehem, uh, up on the ridge line that runs from... Page went, but Page doesn't remember any of this. I'm not sure what Page did, uh, honestly. But anyway, we were up on the ridge line that, that run. There's a road that runs atop this ridge south of Jerusalem. Come out of Jerusalem, you're up high. You follow that ridge to Bethlehem. You follow it 15 miles further south down to Hebron, which is actually about 500 feet higher than Jerusalem. And then you start down that. And that's they call that the Way of the Patriarchs. Because the patriarchs traveled that route down that center ridge line in the land of Israel, in the southern part down there to Judah. You may know that in Hebron there is a tomb. It's a cave. It is the cave that Abraham bought to bury his wife, Sarah, in. And in that cave, still there, there is buried Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, all their wives except for one exception, Rachel, she died just outside of Bethlehem. And there's a big tomb right outside the entrance into Bethlehem where she's supposed to supposedly buried. Now, why am I telling you this? Because those three guys are important. When we think of the nation of Israel, remember that the word Israel means Prince of God, and it is the other name that was given to Jacob. When we say the children of Israel, what we're really saying is they who are the descendants or the children of that man Jacob. And so from those three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see springing this race that becomes this nation. And it is the development of that nation that is before us in this psalm. Here's the beginning of it. Here's how it started. Let's read about it. Notice um, he made this covenant. He confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law to Israel, for an everlasting covenant. Notice the parallelism in Hebrew. You know what I'm talking about? When you have a parallelism, you say the same thing twice, which is very helpful for folks like us, you know, redneck Mississippians, because we need more than one time to get it. And in case you don't get it the first time, then you get a second pass at it. And notice here, he confirmed this covenant to Jacob for a law to Israel. That's the same as Jacob, his other name for an everlasting covenant. So notice how we have two descriptions of the same things. Very common in Hebrew to have these parallelisms. It's very helpful for us in understanding it. And then notice verse 11. What does this covenant involve? Well, he says, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. Uh, We might stop there a moment. What is the difference between purchasing a piece of land and getting it as your inheritance? price. (laughs) If it's your inheritance, it didn't cost you anything. It is bequeathed to you. You didn't purchase it. You didn't buy it. And notice that the land of Canaan is used, spoken of in Scripture, as as their inheritance. Now, we have an inheritance in the New Testament. Where is it? Heaven. Okay, so there is the same idea 
that there is a land, there is a place that is to be our inheritance. Canaan, the type of the heavenly one, is what we're speaking of here. Notice in verse 12, When ye were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it. You were wandering around in this land, and there were just a few of you, and you were foreigners. Uh, we're speaking here, of course, Abraham. Was Abraham a native of Canaan? Where did he come from? Ur of the Chaldees. Where's that? Babylon. That's exactly right. It is down in the Euphrates uh, Valley uh, near the coast of Babylon. And so we, we have the idea that he came, as he mentioned, as the scripture will mention, he was an idolater. He came out of idolatry. God called him out of that mess. And told him to go to a land where I'll show you. So he has come from afar. Uh, if you went from, say, Jerusalem to Babylon as a crow flies, it wouldn't be but 500 miles or so. But the way you got to go, you got to follow the, what's called the Fertile Crescent, follow the rivers. It's a long way from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. So he has come from afar, and he's wandering through this land, just a few of them. When they went to uh, Egypt later on, how many of them were they in the family? You're close. All right, 70. I'll take that. There were 70 souls in all that relocated to Egypt. So here they have been in the land of Canaan for three generations. How many of them are there? 70. Not that many. Just a few. Just a handful. They're just wandering around. Um, We have in that statement 70 souls went to Egypt, just for you who were asleep that day in 8th grade grammar, a synecdoche. A synecdoche. A synecdoche is a literary device where a portion speaks of the whole. And wh- <laughs> Shocking, yeah. It's, uh, it is a literary device whereby a part of something represents the whole. Okay? So when you say 70 souls went to Egypt, did they leave their bodies back in Canaan? No, the whole person went to Canaan, but you say 70 souls. You say back in the days of the British Navy, you had this admiral had command over a hundred sails. Did he only command the sail? No, he also commanded the ship. Okay, just just as something to brush up on. Okay, so you have these, these literary figures of speech. So the point is, is that they're extremely small. It's just a small number. And notice verse 13, they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, and he suffered, that is, God suffered, he did not allow any man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. In other words, they wandered around, they were in these various kingdoms, and he wouldn't let anybody harm them, anybody touch them, he said, don't touch my anointed. When did that happen? What's he talking about? Anybody got an idea? Went down. I, if you ask me my, and of course the point is, is that nowhere in Scripture do you find these exact words. But we find that at one time, both Abraham and Isaac, his son, went down into the Philistine land. And Abimelech, who was the, uh, it seems to be not so much a proper name as a title like Pharaoh. He was the king down in that coastal area. And both times they told him that their wives was their sisters, like father, like son. Uh, Isaac does exactly what, 
his father Abraham did. And there's two things going on there is that especially to Isaac. Uh, turn to Genesis 26. You'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Genesis 26. Uh, you'll see Abimelech sends his men to Isaac. And um, verse 27. Genesis 26, 27. Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there now be... Let there be now an oath between us, even between us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have done nothing unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace, and art now the blessed, thou art now the blessed of the Lord. So notice the reference to the fact that we haven't touched you. And so most feel like the reference here in the psalm is referring back to those two episodes where both Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and Rebekah are in fact protected from these pagan kings down there on the coastal plain, most likely. Because notice the next thing that happens in verse 16 is now we begin the story of the Exodus and their sojourn in Egypt. Notice in verse 16, back in our psalm, he says, Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. There's an interesting expression. He broke the staff of bread. Anybody got any clue as to why we, you would... What, what, first of all, what does that mean? What? The supply. In other words, it means that he cut off their food. Why would you use this expression, he broke their staff? We call this the staff of life, or we use similar expressions, and that seems to be what's being referred to here. In other words, that which supported them, that's what gives you strength, holds you up, props like a staff would prop you up. Um, this is the bread that the land produces. And so the famine then cuts off that staff, your, your food supply. And of course, that's what it's talking about. But notice in verse 17, he sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. And now we get into the episode of what brought Israel from the land of Canaan into the land of Egypt. We have the story here of Joseph. doesn't tell us all the story about the brothers and selling him out and so forth. But we do find he's sold. He's put his, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Uh, this is an interesting expression because most of the metal that uh, was in use in Canaan at this time was either copper or brass, bronze. And iron uh, really was not known very much in the land of Canaan. Uh, you may remember later on in the days of King Saul that the Philistines had the technology of iron. They had spears and swords of iron where the Israelites are still using their slingshots and their bows and arrows and so forth. Uh, the Philistines had these iron swords and so forth. But that's several centuries later. This is the very beginning of what we call the Iron Age. And so Joseph, it's a detail we don't find anywhere else. He's put in uh, fetters. He, is lay, his, his, he was laid in iron. And so the emphasis is he was absolutely bound and in prison until the time that his word, that his word came, the word of the Lord. Uh, tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, let him go free. 
made him lord of his house, ruler of all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure to teach his senators wisdom. So notice we have the career of Joseph. And by the way, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis takes up a large section of the book of Genesis. It's a very interesting story. I've been tempted to try to preach on it on Sunday morning and never have done that. But it's an interesting study, a study of the life of Joseph, and especially to note the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Many similar things occur in their lives. But notice that the idea is is that Joseph has gone ahead of them. They don't have food. And so in verse 23, Israel also came into Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. That's telling us there arose another Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and turned against the Israelites, began to be jealous and afraid of them because of their numbers. So notice they have gone into Egypt, 70 souls. How many of them were they when they came out of Egypt? In, in the book of Numbers... And there's a reason why the book of Numbers is called Numbers, because there's a bunch of numbers in there. There's census that is taken, census of the men who were 20 years old and older. Uh, What is interesting, there's a census at the beginning of the book of Numbers, there's one at the end. In the middle, they've gone through the wilderness wandering, and that whole generation has died off. And if you compare the two numbers, you'll see they were just about as large at the end of the wilderness wandering, when they went into Canaan, as they were in the beginning when they came out of Egypt. But there's about a half a million men. And that's not including the wives and children. So they have multiplied greatly during their time in the land of Egypt. And so notice that they come out of Egypt. Verse 26, here's the story of Moses. Now, if nothing more, you're getting a good review of Old Testament history tonight. Okay, we get, notice we're getting the sequence. We're going to talk about why the writer is doing this in just a few minutes. So bear with me. Let's go a little further. He sent Moses, his servant, Aaron, whom he chosen, and he showed, their, he showed them signs, uh, these wonders. And now we have from verse 28 for the next several verses, we have the list of the plagues that came upon the land of Egypt. Darkness is mentioned first. In the order of plagues, it was the last. But it's uh, they're not exactly in the same order that we have them in Exodus. But notice uh, darkness, uh, the water turning into blood, verse 29, 30, the frogs, uh, 31, the flies and the lice, 32, the, the hail and the flaming fire, and the reference to the fact that he smote their vines, their fig trees, and so forth. Uh, if you've ever been through a bad hailstorm, my, um, I grew up on a cotton farm, and renowned in my parts was the hailstorm of 1953 out where I grew up. They had a bumper cotton crop. Most of it they had to pick up off the ground because hailstones about the size of baseballs fell and stripped the cotton off the plants for them, stripped leaves, stripped trees just completely leafless. Uh, it was quite an amazing storm. And so, a bad hailstorm. And these are hailstones mixed with fire, notice. Uh, they have stripped the vegetation. And then on top of that, there are locusts and caterpillars in verse 34. They ate up the herbs, devoured the fruit of the ground. Go back to Exodus, you'll read about the locusts. Not one we talk about a lot. And then he smote also the firstborn in their land. Of course, that's the last plague. 
And verse 37, he brought them forth also with silver and gold. There was not one feeble person among them. Notice that they came out of Egypt. They were given the jewelry. Remember as they left, it would be the gold and silver that was given to them that they will now use to make the tabernacle, which had a lot of gold and silver in it. It will be this gold and silver that they will employ for that. In verse 38, Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. And now we have the description starting in verse 39 of the wilderness wanderings. The cloud for a covering of fire to give light in the night. Notice the people asked and he brought quails and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. First of all, in the wilderness, they didn't have anything. I mean, you didn't have Kroger. It's nothing. How do you feed half a million people? Where do you get the food? If you put half a million people out there today, how would you feed them? And notice that we have the description, first of all, of the quails and then of the bread. Manna, of course, is what is being referred to here that they lived on during that wilderness time. Now, the quail didn't turn out quite so good. Um, An interesting adjunct to our discussion tonight. We were up around the Sea of Galilee, just north of there, and our guide was telling us this story that he had, he said, most people don't realize that Israel is the second largest flyway birds in the world. And he says, we get these storms over in Europe that blow birds, flocks of birds, across the Mediterranean, and by the time they get to Israel, they are so weak they cannot fly. And he said, I have literally walked out in fields covered with birds that are so exhausted they cannot fly, and I can literally step down and pick them up off the ground. And what he's saying to us is that we have actually seen this same phenomena that is being explained here. We've seen it. He no sooner got those words out of his mouth. We go by this field that is covered with several thousand pelicans. Pelicans that have been blown apparently across. They had had this storm come. You remember the storm that hit the northeast? The, The bad, you know, after Sandy there was that bad windstorm that went through there, that was sweeping through there. That We were following that. We were flying through it on our way down to Israel. And that thing was hitting right as we got there. And that storm had come through and apparently had blown these pelicans. And there they are. Thousands of them out there. And I don't know if they were so weak they couldn't fly. We were on a bus. We didn't get to check it out. But what he's saying is that these types of things, we know these things happen. We've seen these things happen. Then notice, he opened the rock. Waters gushed out. Remember Moses striking the rock? And he remembered his holy promise, Abraham his servant. He brought forth his people with joy, his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people. Notice, he gave them the land somebody else had, and somebody else had worked. He gave them the labors of the people. In other words, you get the picture the Canaanites have labored. They've built these cities. They've built these houses. God gives it to them. Now, we know Jericho, they destroyed utterly, but most times they would preserve these places and they would use them for their own purposes. So, in other words, God took it away from them, gave it to you because of the covenant that he made with you. He did this, verse 45, the last verse, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. Anybody want to hazard a guess in Hebrew what that last phrase says. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
last psalm, Psalm 104, the last verse, is the first time in the psalms we have the word hallelujah. Here's the second time we have in the psalms, hallelujah. So just to make sure you know what you're saying when you say hallelujah, you're saying praise the Lord. All right. We can sort of say fascinating story. Everybody lived happily ever after, so forth. Well, let's think about this. What in the world is this psalm telling us? What, what is the point? What is the purpose? Uh, and, and first of all, just think again of the variety of psalms that we have studied. Everything from the penitential psalm of David back there in Psalm 51. Um, more importantly, what was Psalm 104 all about? Greatness of God in creation. If you think back through Psalm 104, surely y'all hadn't forgotten all that in one week's time. But it's all about the fact that God has created an earth. He has shaped it and fashioned it. We called it the ecology of God. That He has supplied, He talks about the waters, and there's rivers of water, and that's for the wild beast of the forest to drink. Uh, it's to water the crops so that the grass grows, so that Food is produced for man. In other words, it's all about the interrelationship of nature and how God has constructed and designed and shaped and fashioned this planet to be a suitable place for man and for the rest of his creatures. Now, of course, the evolutionist never sees that because the evolutionist is assuming that the animals are evolving to fit the environment rather than the environment being shaped to fit the needs of man and God's creatures. It's exactly backwards. So the evolutionists will never see that. But Psalm 104 is making it very plain that God has not only created a planet, third rock from the sun, but He has shaped it and fashioned it and formed it into a place that is suitable for man and for His creatures to dwell therein. Now that was basically what Psalm 104 was all about. Psalm 105 is similar in that it, too, is speaking of the works, the acts of God. Psalm 104 is speaking of His acts in creation, in fashioning the earth, and so forth. Now we're speaking of God's works, but in a different vein. I would liken this to the difference between what we call natural revelation and special revelation. If you read the systematic theologies, you'll see that they make a distinction between what they would call natural light, the light of nature, and special light, special revelation. Now, somebody out there explain to me the difference between those two. Who wants to go first? Okay, what, if we were to say, uh, how would I go about seeing natural revelation? What would be your answer? Uh, uh, Charles was just quoting Psalm 19 earlier at the table tonight. The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, there's the idea that Paul uses that, of course, in Romans chapter 1, that even the heathen know, they instinctively know. They see the invisible things of Him from the visible creation. They see order, and so that indicates an orderer. They see a creation that speaks of a creator. 
And if we were to look at this creation, of course, this was a lot of what I talked about last Wednesday night. If we look at creation, what does this tell, tell us about our God? Is he a little bitty, tiny God? In other words, if the creation is his handiwork, then what we are dealing with is a gigantic God. We are dealing with a God who is great, who is awesome, who is powerful. In other words, we think of the law of cause and effect. You know what I mean by that. And one of the great questions that have been asked in philosophy through the centuries is, that a learned law, or is it instinctive? The law of cause and effect. Is that something that I grow up and learn about, or do I already have that hardwired? Y'all don't remember the days of hardwired computers, where you actually had wires. We had at Rice, in 1953, the largest computer in the world. It was still there when I was there in the late 60s. It was in an entire building. It ran on vacuum tubes instead of transistors. They invented the transistor. And it was so many vacuum tubes that they had a guy who was a full-time employee that all he did is swap out vacuum tubes. Of course, we got a whole generation here that don't even know what a vacuum tube is. Never seen one. Uh, well, trust me, these things we used to have in our TVs. When... When they have bug, you hear the, I've got a bug in my program. They literally had bugs in their program. That's where that expression comes from. They have moths get stuck in the, the, the leads and the connections. So you had bugs. So you went in there and debugged your program. <laughs> literally. I mean, that's where these expressions come from. And why I'm telling you this, they had what was called bootstrap ROM. Bootstrap ROM. We say today, I'm going to boot up my computer. Right? That's referring to that bootstrap ROM. Anybody know what bootstrap ROM is? Robert, you know. Gets it going. You're exactly right. In other words, a computer, when you turn it on, knows not, I mean, it's sitting there, it's dumb, it doesn't know anything, it doesn't know what to do. And just because you hit it with electricity doesn't mean it still doesn't know what to do, except for the fact that there is a tiny bit of instructions in the ROM, the read-only memory, that's been burned into a chip. It doesn't disappear when you turn the power off like your other memory. This stays constant. So that when you hit it with electricity, this knows how to find the hard drive, how to find the keyboard, how to find the screen. That's all written into this bootstrap program. And so, anybody got a clue as to why you call it a bootstrap program? You ever heard of somebody pulling themselves up by their bootstraps? In other words, the idea is is that the computer has to have something internally that it knows in order to learn everything else. The law of cause and effect, is that something we know, we learn growing up, or is that something that is hardwired in our bootstrap ROM that we're made with it? We're, I think we are Made. I think that is one of the things to be created in the image of God means. And what we're saying is, we are created with the capacity to understand that if we see an effect, we look behind it for a cause. And we look behind it for an adequate cause. If I see an earth, don't tell me a rock did that. 
I have to have a cause that is adequate, that is greater than the effect. And so if I see this gigantic universe, some 13 billion light years across, I've got to have a God who is capable of creating something like that. If I see the power, the energy that is displayed in our universe, then this is telling me that my God is great, my God is powerful, And so I am created with the capability of knowing that and knowing that instinctively. I don't have to be taught that. I just, as you say, look around, look at the stars, look at the bugs, look at the worms, and I instinctively know those things. It's hardwired in my psyche. Special revelation, on the other hand. Oh, by the way, if man had never sinned in the garden, there had never been a fall into sin. Would natural revelation have been enough? Did Adam know everything he needed to know? You don't think so? Why not? Well, I'm not saying that he didn't learn, but I'm just saying did... My point is, it is the entrance of sin that brings about the need for special revelation. In other words, I can learn facts about God from nature, from just like Adam did. But I can't learn about salvation by looking at the stars. You say, I can just worship God out there just as well in my fishing boat out on the lake. No, you can't. You can hear the sound of natural revelation. You won't get special revelation from staring at the water, staring at the sky, staring at the stars. You have to be told. You have to be taught. What I'm saying is just as there's distinction between natural revelation and special revelation, what we're seeing in Psalm 104 and tonight in Psalm 105 is two different kinds of the works of God. His general work that He does from which all men benefit. Doesn't mean that they're lost or saved. Every man benefits from what we read last week in Psalm 104. Notice tonight, though, we are zeroing in to another set of works those works that God has performed for His chosen, for His covenant people, on the behalf of an Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And so we have that same distinction, same type of thing we draw between general revelation and special revelation. Now we have it, the general works of God that He does for all men. For all, I mean, the rain falls, the rivers run. All men benefit from that. But what He has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no, all men don't benefit from that. In fact, the Canaanites didn't benefit. They had their stuff taken away and given to these folks because God had made a covenant with them and He didn't make it with the Canaanites. You say, well, well God loves everybody. Yeah, unless His name is Esau. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, He singled this people out. He Just as we read last week, He shapes and forms and crafts this world He has shaped and crafted and formed a nation, a people, in the same way, for his own benefits, for his own use. Now, we're going to find the sad, sorry conclusion of that next psalm. Did they recognize, did they then, notice the whole point of this, verse 45, why does he do this? What's he looking for from them? I gave it away last Sunday morning. He's looking for fruit. He's looking for obedience. Looking for worship. Notice he did all this in verse 45, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Did he? Did they do that? Well, we're going to see in Psalm 106, that's hardly the case. 
But that was the point. They have been the beneficiary of blessing after blessing. Special works done on their behalf. He worked for them. He worked against Egyptians. He worked for them. He worked against Canaanites. He gave them special favor. That's what we mean by grace. He loved them. Why did He love them? Well, because He loved them. That's the only answer we ever given in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I loved you because I loved you. It certainly wasn't because you were so big and bad. You weren't big. You weren't bad. You were nothing. Just a few of you. A handful of you. You wandered here. You wandered there. I put my favor. I set. That's the words of Deuteronomy 6. I love it. I love the way it states. I set my love on you. Very different concept of love than how we think of love. We trip and fall in love. You know, and just walking along, trip, fell right into a big puddle of it. That's not how God loves. In fact, we love what is lovable. You know, I met this lovely girl and I married her. Made my heart go pitter-patter. God looks down at us makes him want to vomit. <laughs> and yet, he loved us. That's why I keep saying his love is more an act of his will, an act of choice, than it is an act of affection. The affection follows the choice. In our case, the choice follows the affection. We fall in love and then we say, I do. God says, I do, and then falls in love. Totally different thing. But notice that they have been the beneficiary of His blessing, of gift after gift, and with that blessing comes responsibility, and we see next time how they fail that. So, first of all, notice the distinction that's being made between Psalm 104 and 105. Notice as well that these psalms were undoubtedly designed for children, adults, to learn, to memorize, to sing, in that it reminds them of their history. Uh, how did most of you learn your ABCs? A, B, C, D, F, right? Why is it that we can set something to music and you can remember it? And you can't remember it, rem- remember it if you don't. Why is that? There's something about singing songs that help us as a memory device to keep things straight in order, and notice that this, to us, is just a page of words to them. It is a hymn in their hymn book. It's something they sung. They would have known this song. And therefore, it was an aid to their understanding and remembering these facts. But clearly, there's a whole lot more than that going on. We see in this the absolute sovereignty of God. You say, well, you're saying that because you're a Calvinist, and that's what Calvinists are supposed to say. No, I'm saying that because it is all through this psalm. Did you notice it? How often it is God and His work causing whatever is going to happen? I mean, just look at the He's sprinkled through this. Look at verse 8 and 9. He has remembered His covenant, the Word, the oath He made with Abraham. In verse 14, He suffered no man to do them wrong. If we are talking about Abimelech, Abraham went down there. Abimelech saw Sarah. She must have been a looker because she had, what, how old was she about this time? Seventy. And Abimelech said, man, that's one good looking gal. And I want her in my harem. And Abraham has already made a deal with her 
to tell them that she's his sister instead of his wife, and which was half true. She was his half-sister. But as we say, a half-truth is a whole lie. So Abimelech takes her into his harem. And God appears to him in a dream and says, You're a dead duck, boy. You're a dead man. And why? Because you've got another man's wife in your harem. Now this is centuries before God spoke on Mount Sinai and said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And here is a Gentile king who knows it's wrong to have another man's wife in his harem. You understand, adultery didn't become sin at Mount Sinai. Adultery is already sin here long before Mount Sinai. And this guy ain't arguing with God. He says, he didn't say, well, you know, I didn't know adultery. I didn't know you're not supposed to. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I haven't laid a hand on her. I haven't touched her. And you know what God replies? Yes, I know that. I withheld thee from sinning against me. I wouldn't suffer what does it say here? He suffered no man to do them wrong. He said, touch not mine anointed. I wouldn't let them touch you. Who did that? God said, I withheld you from sinning against me. Here's a case of God restraining a man from sinning against him. Let's go a little further. You'll see the flip side of that in verse 16. But notice here he controls the weather. He called for a famine. The famine that put Israel in Egypt was God sent. You don't read that, well, they were being bad, and so to punish them, God sent this famine on the land. But that God's purpose was for them to go to Egypt and for them to be used as a picture of redemption. And to get them into Egypt, He sent the famine. Notice, He broke the whole staff of bread. Verse 17, He sent a man before them, Joseph. You say, wait a minute, we did that. His brothers did that. They're the ones who threw him in that pit, sold him to those slave traders. No, God said, I did it. I'm sending him ahead to prepare the way for you. Uh, look down. Oh, man, there's so many of them. Verse 24, he increased his people mightily. And then the Egyptians in verse 25. Here we had Abimelech being restrained from sinning. And look what he did to Egypt. He turned their heart to hate his people. He turned the hearts of the Egyptians against his people so they'd hate him. I mean, people have a problem with God saying to Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose and so forth. They have a problem with God's sovereignty there. Here he says, I did that to the whole nation. I turned their hearts. Now, keep in mind that God works sovereignly for his purposes, and yet he doesn't force anybody to do anything. They voluntarily hate his people in their heart. You say, what does God have to do to predestine me to sin? Nothing. Just let you go. That's what you naturally do. I mean, you're leaning head over heels in that direction. All He has to do is just turn you loose. In fact, in Romans 1, that's what Paul says. They were, you know, they wanted this and so God gave them over. He gave them up. Well, what had He been doing before then? He had been holding them back. So in other words, it doesn't take anything for God to ensure that you're going to sin against Him. He just has to let you do what you do. It takes, takes grace that you don't sin. It just takes Him letting you go to ensure you sin. Oh man, we just keep going. Look at the plagues. He sent darkness, verse 20, 28. He turns their waters over and over. He spoke and there came flies and lies. It was the lies of all things that the Egyptian magicians said, we can't do that. 
We can do the frogs. We can do the water into blood. We can do the snake deal. The snake trick? Yeah, we can do that. When the lice came, they said, No, this is God. Of all things, the lice. He gave them hell. He smote their vines. He spoke and locusts came. He smote all the firstborn in the land. He brought them forth, verse 37. He spread a cloud for a covering. He opened up the rock. Down the line. You say, Am I stretching things to say that you see a sovereign God fulfilling His purpose and His promise in His people? Because everywhere you look, who's doing this? God's doing this. Linda, were you raising your hand? Yeah, you'd expect him to say, well, they just happened down to Egypt and bad things happened and then, you know, just just so happened. But there were so many just so happens that it became clear it just didn't so happen. Well, why is this important to you and me? Why would this mean, I mean, this is great history, It's sort of like studying pre-Columbian art. There's people that do that. There's people that get PhDs. But what practical use is this? What's the benefit? Why would I be interested in what is being said here in Psalm 105? Eric, when he was sworn in as an American citizen down here at Oxford, I'd never been to one of those. Very fascinating, by the way. You ever get a chance to go, go to one of those. Anyway, he had to learn American history. He had to study our government to be sworn in as an American citizen. Because becoming a citizen of the good old U.S. of A., which now gives him the right to pay taxes, to serve in the military, after listening to all the rights he was being given, I'm thinking, why did you do this? <laughs> we'll go back to Mexico. It's looking better back there. But anyway, after hearing that, you, here's what you've got to do to prepare. You've got to know something about where this nation comes from. Because now you are being engrafted into this nation. And their history, you may have been a long way from it, but their history is now your history. And when the 4th of July rolls around, you're supposed to know what that means and why we would celebrate that day. They don't celebrate 4th of July in Mexico. Flash, newsflash. My, my brother-in-law was in the military in Turkey, and he wrote home his first letter. They, they sure don't celebrate holidays here like we do at home. We had the 4th of July, and all the stores were open and everything. He didn't get it. Didn't get it. But if you become a citizen of our land, you're supposed to know why the stores are closed. Well, they don't even close anymore, but why people take the day off on the 4th of July. It's your history. Do you realize that this is my history? Paul uses that tree illustration of the native branches broken off and wild olive branches. That's me. Wild Gentile branches being engrafted into a Jewish tree. I have Jewish roots. I worship a Jewish Messiah. I'm reading a Jewish hymn book tonight. I'm studying Jewish prophets. This history is my history. And that same oath, that covenant that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that promise that He's keeping down through the centuries is the same covenant, it's the same promise that I'm latching on to. The things that come to me through Jesus Christ didn't come out of a vacuum, just didn't come from nowhere. 
It came at the end of a long history of God's dealing with His people, bringing into reality the person in whom all of these promises are going to be realized. I wish I had time tonight to show you this in the New Testament of how you'll see Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, say the oath that our God promised to our forefathers, He's now fulfilling. We waited a long time. It was a long time ago when He uttered these things. Now He's doing it. Same thing Paul will say. Acts of Antioch of Pisidia I mentioned earlier. He uses the same language there. What God promised, He's now fulfilling in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why this is important to me. Because their history is indeed my history. I have joined up I, I joined a Jewish church. You say, where are all the Jews? I don't know. I didn't leave them. They left me. They sort of said, they looked around at a guy like me and said, if you're going to let a guy like that in the club, we're out of here. I was engrafted in that Jewish tree. And blessings that are being promised to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are coming to me. You mean you got Jewish Genetics in you, as far as I know, I don't have one corpuscle of Jewish blood in my body. But I am united, I am wed to the Jew, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am in-lawed into the covenant. And covenant blessings come to me and every other Gentile out there who believes on Jesus. That the seed to whom these promises are realized is not that physical seed. It's those who have the faith of an Abraham and trust in God as Abraham trusted in God. They are the children, says Paul, of Abraham. And so I get it, but I get it indirectly. I get it through my Savior. But you remember what uh, Ruth said to Naomi? Thy people shall be my people. Thy God shall be my God. Where Where you go, I'm going. That's what I say to Jesus. Your people, my people. Your God, your Father, my God, Father. I get it through Him. Paul in Romans 15 says, Jesus was a minister of the circumcision so that they had received the promises. And He also is the one in whom the Gentiles will all be saved. Does both things at once. We'll quit. I'll quit. Uh, I, I just hope I this, this, the enthusiasm that this generates in me is the remarkable way the Bible hangs together. A book that is written over some 2,500 years by over 40 different authors, most of whom never knew one another, living in different places. How does it tell the same story? How does it all fit together? Something must be going on beyond mere human invention. Somebody has to be superintending this process. And so I can then have confidence that what we have studied tonight is indeed the Word of God. And it's telling me the same story over and over again. The blessing and salvation that has come, promised to the fathers, down through history, coming to a head in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can sort of add a new chapter to Israel's history, can't we? The cross, the empty tomb, 
the ascension to the throne. The addendum, and not just the addendum, it's really the whole point of the whole book is pointing to that.